Welcome back to the podcast, guys. It's episode number 79. We've got Kelly Coffee coming back to us. We're going to talk with her about why she doesn't spend too much time talking, interacting on social media, just focus on her clients instead. We get a debate as to whether food addiction is a real thing and some elements around that. Is there such a thing as being too addicted to fitness? Can it happen? Is it dangerous? A conversation about figure yourself as a non-smoker or addicted person versus an ex-smoker. And the whole problem with equating thinner with happiness and how it's a little more complex than that. Stay tuned. It's a great one. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we've got Kelly Coffee back with us. Uh, we're revisiting uh, and further exploring her work, helping people through addiction, getting them involved with their better physical and emotional fitness. And uh, so I guess the first thing we we're curious about is uh, what have you been up to lately and uh, how has your work evolved from where you started? Well, hi fellas. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, what have I been up to lately? The last several years has been about me fine-tuning how I support my clients online, mostly. So I've been, I've been doing mostly large group work with my subscribers, but I've also branched out into accountability coaching. So that's some uh, remote one-on-one -on -one work, and that's been very satisfying and very enlightening. Uh, and other than that, I've been focused on traveling as much as possible and enjoying my time with my kids. I, my girls are now six and seven years old and they're pretty amazing. So you haven't decided to start a coffee company like Jordan Syed Scott or, uh, we were talking with John Romanello just recently about people branching out of fitness directly, like John's work with, uh, wellspring and he's getting more into business well business coaching and writing and that sort of stuff so no urges to just step in and create your own kelly coffee clothing line uh i have been asked to create all kinds of things and uh no i have not i have not branched out although i do uh i do appreciate that having physical objects to sell is much easier than selling intellectual property or selling ideas. So I'm open to, if anyone has a, a really fabulous, low cost, like shoelace that they think I should throw my brand behind, I'm open to getting those emails. <laughs> like those, like those uh, things they send at work conferences, like little trinkets, like a laser pointer or like, like a holder or like a bottle cap opener. Like you could have a company like that. Guido's, I could. Guido's making physical gestures with his hands yeah. at me. And I actually went, I made a physical gesture of a bottle opener. I put my finger through it and you can see it, but that doesn't, that looks like something. Because everybody else who's listening to this has no idea what he's doing. So when he does shit like this, I like to make fun of him. So, uh, you know, what? we always, we never do this. So anyone who isn't used to us or kind of first time finds this voice is Andrew, Andrew Coates. And then the other one is Guido. So Dean Guido. Well, let's. Let's go here. I like this one because I love asking these kind of questions. So Kelly, um, a lot of our industry, uh, our, our friends, our peers, our contemporaries, um, they are pretty active on social media. They talk amongst each other. Sometimes they're arguing. Sometimes it's nastier than arguing. But 
you actually aren't all that heavily engaged directly on your social media. You tend to stay out of that online space, comments and Facebook and whatnot. Um, so where did that come from? Is that in part due to social media's own addictive properties or is it just for a totally different reason? Uh, that's a really good question. So I am really, really, really busy. <laughs> I don't know how our peers and contemporaries ever find the time to engage in the arguments that they engage in online. Not being busy. Like, I, I you know, I, I certainly am witness to a lot of it. And it's just, it just doesn't seem like a strong use of my time. When I have maybe a free hour every day, I want to spend that hour cleaning my house, you know, working out or generating some content for my paid subscribers. You know, I, I generate, I generate uh, unique content for my clients every day, 365 days a year. So there's a lot that I'm doing that no one outside of that sort of little universe would see but i don't i don't see any benefit to participating in that stuff um which which some people would call me crazy for because that means less exposure and less people know me but i'm okay with that well and that kind of leads me to like how do you get so busy like in a world where everyone's pushing like you gotta be pushing content everyone's gonna see your shit blah 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 blah, blah. like how have you how have you built that essentially the old school way well, I I started my blog in 2014, and so that was before I had the course, before I'd created the course that I created, The Pleasure Principles, to help people get grounded in healthier habits who are programmed to self-destruct. Before I had that product, before I had that course, before I was supporting people who signed into that community, I had a lot more free time, and so I wrote blog posts once a week or once every two weeks. And for the year or so that I had a blog before I created my course, I was super engaged in that. And that generated a lot of the buzz that brought people into my community. But ever since my community has started, word of mouth has helped it to expand. So I'm busier and busier every day just by virtue of the fact that I have a course that is really helping people. And I'm extremely involved in it. I am it. I, I, I am the content creator. I am the administrative director. I am the owner. I am the financial person. I am the marketing person. I'm everything, which some people would also say is crazy, but it enables me to control the quality of absolutely every aspect of my business. And part of my sort of obsessive, addictive personality finds that very, very satisfying. <laughs> so... I'm busy because I do good work. And uh, that's, yeah, that's pretty much the answer to that. We're seeing a message now more constantly with, uh, we. it seems like somehow someone slipped in, John Romanello slipped it in last episode uh, about uh, like online business coaches. And like, and funny enough, like John does uh, business coaching <laughs> at a very, very high level. He's been a guy who's been around a long time. But so you see all these little new coaches popping up on social media and, and people who haven't really done a lot or demonstrated success to, to, to then all of a sudden be coaching others. But, uh, damn it. Which is terrifying. It is really, really <laughs> awful. Terrifying. But, right. Wasn't, isn't one of those old adages, like those who can't do teach. <laughs> yeah. So 
Yeah. And as much as I feel like like beating up on this stuff constantly is low-hanging fruit, but a lot of their message is scaling your business, scaling your business. And I, I at the end of the day, like I don't think a lot of people are capable of coming in and help replicating something like the, what you're doing, because what you're doing is very specific. It's very based on your personal experience. I think it'd be very hard to find someone else to bring into what you're doing that uh, could replicate the quality of your work. Well, I'm very much my product. You know, my journey is what I, my tools, the tools that I used to save my own life and bring myself to a healthy, comfortable weight and, you know, let go of the vices that were killing me. The very specific things that I did in order to be able to do that are what I teach. So anyone who might come in, like I'll never sell my business. Mm -hmm. You know, every time I speak to someone who's business minded, they say, well, well, have you set it up so that someday you can sell it off at a profit and relax? And I'm like, no, because no one, the, 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 the way that people connect with the content is that they can see that I have benefited from it and they are connecting directly with me. This is not something that someone else could do, which means, you know, I'll never sell it for a million dollars and run to Bali, but that's okay. Cause I love what I do. So well, that's a good I'm, message I'm, even though. Cause like, I think that a lot of we're talking about business coaches, but like business advice in general is general and certain things like this doesn't mean it's the right answer. Like you should build your business this way because of this happening and this happening, but like you like what you do. Is that wrong? And it works because of that. Like it works because you're doing it the opposite way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, truth be told, I've never once written a business plan. I didn't go into this. I didn't go into this imagining that it would be anything. Yeah. I just did the best job that I could answering the questions that people were asking me and continuing to do that day in and day out for years. I've now got this amazing course and this amazing community that I'm, you know, lucky enough to be at the helm of. Have you ever, um, have you ever thought about, I guess, taking some of that content or the creation and like setting it out to the bigger world? And what I mean by that is like social media just for exposure or does it like not matter? Cause like that, that could be an answer too. It occurs to me sometimes that I could probably have a YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's one of those things that my, my subscribers are like, why don't you do this for more people? Why don't you put this stuff out there for more people? And, uh, for better or worse, I'm not a business minded person. Yeah. I'm a help minded person. So if I'm going to put time and energy into something, I want it to be in service to the people who are ready to make a change. Yeah. I don't just sort of want to be screaming out into the void, hoping maybe somebody connects with what I say, uh, which is what marketing feels like to me often. Yeah. So I have an automated webinar that I run all the time, which is how most people find out about my course and join my community. But other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm not generating fresh, fresh, you know, videos every day, even though I, I probably could and maybe even should. <laughs> you should. It's working. You should. <laughs> no, no, I said, I don't know if you should. I, I, I think oh. it's, um, you're, you're dealing with a specific community. And like you said, your message will get lost and almost watered down if you send it out. And like, not that that's a bad thing. Like that's marketing one. There, there are but. people I think though that, um, and Kelly, you're definitely one of them. I, I imagine Mark Fisher immediately who, you know, if you got like a 10 minute YouTube video twice or three times a week, just a colorful animated persona 
that uh, some some of these people we're talking about have. That would be really fun to do. Like, can you imagine Mark just, hey, hey, friends? <laughs> just but Mark's the same thing. Like, no one knows where MFF outside. Like, it's getting more well-known. But even, like, Stronger You, like, no one really knows. It's kind of like their own micro-community. And I, I think that that's a good thing because the people that are there are the people that want to be there. This this goes to something we've mentioned before. And I don't know, Kelly, if you caught on to this. There's uh, some fitness Instagram influencer. And, and I... I hate the word influencer. When I see that sort of arise, I get nauseous. Uh, some little blonde girl, uh, Brittany Fitness or something, uh, with 500,000 Instagram followers, has sort of hit the news because she was promoting oh, yeah. her training and nutrition stuff and then didn't deliver on most or any of it. She has no qualification. I know that Lane Norton is on the attack mode on her, but we're seeing this sort of stuff now. Well, she had, It seemed like and she had so much success. More, these people are way more famous than... The people that uh, are a lot of our friends in the context. Well, she put it out for the world and they all want it in. And she has like thousands of people wanting programs and she couldn't deliver. But like, that's a problem. That's amazing. Yeah. That's ama- That's that's somebody who's taking advantage of the opportunity to sell because there are so many people just on the edge of their seat waiting for a product. But, you know, you open the door and you you, you, you say, come, come to me. You better have something waiting there for them when they arrive. You know, you better have some high quality something that I actually did read a, an article about her. And I can only imagine how stressed out she must feel right now. Well, they're like, she did it on purpose. I'm like, I, 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 I truthfully don't think she did. It on I purpose. don't think she did either. And I, and I think this is something important. And uh, I recently read a bunch of Brene Brown's books, which were just amazing recommendations. I think it was Mark Fisher who first recommended them to me. I think even when we see these people that we sort of identify as the quote, bad guys, there's still a human, there's still a person behind there. And yeah, I think some of this stuff is very unethical. But I think it's a lot easier to put yourself in their shoes and, and imagine what's going on in their situation before we unilaterally condemn them as evil. It doesn't absolve this individual of the behavior. But I got to believe right now she is in one dirty, awful place emotionally. And, Seriously. Uh, and then, yeah. quite frankly, I think it's hard to turn around and look at it from that lens. Uh, just to look at other people as humans. And this is a person who, I've said this before, I don't know, on air. This is someone who gets up every morning and thinks they're a good person. Um, they love their mom, their mom loves them and they don't go about their day thinking, how can I screw everyone? And you know, <laughs> no, cite, sure. citing Mark again, and Mark is the first person I've ever heard use this language, but he approaches the world looking at people with unconditional positive regard. And I love that phrase. And I think it's, it's a good attitude to take it. Yeah. Genuinely speaking, there are going to be some awful fuckers that you encounter as days go by, but the person who cut you off in traffic <laughs> And we tend to be very impersonal with other cars and drivers. No, they're all assholes. <laughs> they're all assholes. That's that's crossing the line. You fucking come. <laughs> You're a bad person. <laughs> and, and that's that's the point, right? Like, no, they're not a bad person. It's someone's grandma. Maybe, you know. No, she's 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 done. Evil grandma. She's she's, she's out. She's out of the circle. <laughs> of course, it's it's cold and very snowy in Edmonton. And, the first, you'd think Edmonton drivers are used to this crap, but every time there's a snowfall, you drive anywhere, there's five or six vehicles no, no. off the road. And of course, this is Guido playing All the evil uh, people Mario Kart with uh, red shells, like anyone who cuts them off. All the evil people come out bad intentions. Sorry, Kelly. Can we just talk about our, our bad drivers for the next hour? Like, that'd be cool. By all means. I, I'm sure we can come up with an hour's worth of content. <laughs> we have uh, no f bombs yet out of Kelly. Kelly, yeah, uh, what's going on? You're, you're the ultimate. You're the record holder. No one in. This will be probably episode seventy nine if we're counting right. 
no one has uh, has taken your crown for the most f bombs ever. Did someone well, tell you not to swear? That's anymore? fascinating. I think I, uh, I I don't know why I haven't cursed yet, but <laughs> now that I know that I haven't and that I'm the record holder, I'm gonna turn that on its ear and I'm not gonna say one f bomb because if there's anything I'm good at, it's abstinence. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not. From from drugs and alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> See? <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And now swear it is. Um, let, let's actually turn this over to, like, I guess your background. We kind of talked about it a bit, but both personally and professionally deals with addictions, like we were alluding to. And we see some debate over food addiction. And if it's a real addiction, what's your take on this subject? Can I, I'm going to, I want to answer that because food addiction is something that I love to talk about, but I also want to backtrack for a second yeah. and just talk about, um, just to wrap up the piece about why I'm not that active on social media. Yeah. And, and since Andrew brought up influencers, you know, I, I really do get focused. I'm, I'm not someone who thrives on multitasking. Like I throw myself into whatever it is that I'm doing with like reckless abandon, which is both a character flaw and a character asset, depending on what I'm throwing myself into. If I was concerned with my social media image, that would become all consuming much the way that I am sort of all consumed now by delivering quality support to the people that I work with. If, if I was like, Oh, I have to keep up my Instagram page. I have to make sure that I post a blog post twice a week. I have to make sure that my vlog goes out. I have to make sure I have to make sure I know that the quality of my support would go down because I would become so laser focused on that. So um, that is part, that is how my addictive tendencies influence my lack of social media presence, right? Um, so I just wanted to mention that. So basically, you have a job. <laughs> and you Sorry, like it. you have a job and you're good at it and you like it and you don't have time I for do. that shit. I do. And, you know, I would love to be able to do both because surely if I was more active on social media, it would just bring more clients into the fold that I would, you know, be able to support. But there is only one of me. So, you know, it's probably fine the way that it is. Um, But about food addiction, what can I tell you about food addiction? Um, Kind of, I guess this idea, like we talk about people arguing on the internet, but there was, I think there was like a good month span where everyone was like, oh, food addiction's a thing. And then the other people will be like, it's scientific. It's not fucking real. And then they just hammered at it. But like, what's your take on, I guess, just the idea around what it is and if it's real and what people can do about it or not do about it? Uh, I do not believe that food addiction is the same as opiate addiction or alcohol addiction. They, Because I have... I, I am someone who is afflicted by all three. So I can appreciate the differences in how the body reacts, how the mind reacts, and the similarities. There are so many similarities that I think if we're trying to really, um, I think that using the term food addiction is helpful to be able to have an intelligent conversation about the phenomena of not being able to stop eating compulsively especially if it is food specific or macro specific or flavor specific. Like there are a lot of people who cannot stop 
or feel as though they cannot stop eating fast food because it's that perfect marriage of sweet and salty and fatty. And it lights up all of the lights in the whole brain, you know, same as cocaine. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And that level of like gross satisfaction that comes when all of that stuff first, first hits the tongue. It's very much like a drug, um, like a drug like experience. And being away from it is very much like a withdrawal experience. Hmm. It's not identical, but it's similar enough that I think that calling it food addiction is a perfectly valid way to discuss the problem. I also think, uh, not think, I know that there are huge sections of people, huge populations of people who can only get uh, take control of what they eat and how they eat if they first abstain from certain foods or behaviors. And abstinence is the cure for addiction, or if not the cure, is the is the anecdote, not anecdote, antidote, not the antidote. What word am I looking for, boys? I can't say it's, those words. It sounds like, I mean, abstinence is the end state that you're seeking for sure, but I know you're looking those, for Those are hard different. words. I can't say antecedent. What's the evidence one? Personal evidence, Antis, antidotal. I can't fucking use that Anecdotal. word either. Anecdotal. Anecdotal. Like, that's the one word I can't say, and like I can't get in discussions with the people. I just say n equals one because I can't say. Anecdotal. Okay. Um, <laughs> she can't say it either. She can't say and and whatever the one word. Sorry. That word. That word. word. It's a good thing we're cute, Guido, yes. or else we'd be screwed. Yeah. Um. So, if abstinence works to help someone feel as though they are in control with their relationship to certain foods or ways of eating, then addiction is a reasonable, uh, oh my God, um, diagnosis. Yeah. Is that, yes? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's the word I was looking for because the cure fits the, <clears throat> the cure works for the diagnosis. Yes. Abstinence works for addiction. You if someone is struggling to get their weight under control or struggling to eat in ways they feel good about and abstaining from certain things helps them. I think that's wonderful. And I think that calling it an addiction is totally valid. You just use an important word there. Um, <laughs> I just lost it. I get it. Uh, the diagnose. There we go. Diagnose. Diagnosis. So I, I suppose that probably raises a valid point that probably your average trader who has some nutrition knowledge, but um, certainly doesn't have any like, advanced credentials in nutrition probably shouldn't be telling people, Hey, you have a food addiction. Uh, I think it's a safe enough thing to talk about in general, but I'm just of the opinion that you don't diagnose people with shit that you don't, you're not qualified to diagnose. And that goes for injuries and pain. And it also goes for psychological stuff too. Um, Absolutely. And you know, you cannot only an alcoholic can say that they're an alcoholic. You, uh, an outside person cannot truly know that. Only a food addict can diagnose themselves as such. Uh, it's not for someone else to suggest. Well, and like, I like the idea of like the, the, oh fuck, the words are just gone today. The diagnosis or whatever, the abstinence is kind of how you would tell people to get away with it because it's, it's a food addiction. The one shitty thing is it's just like alcohol being present is that our environment, especially like in modern society, is set up to like really fuck with people. <laughs> Like, they really have to abstain from it because it's everywhere. And, like, that's a really hard battle for some people. 
You know? It is. Yeah. It sure is. And, and, and it's totally doable mm-hmm. with the right frame of mind and the right support. I am, I am, I, alcohol was my reason for living for many, many years. And I've been sober now for many, many years, but I've spent last week in Las Vegas where absolutely <laughs> everywhere, everything, everyone, every surface was basically covered in booze and most of it was free and all of it was pretty and there were these hot women walking around in tiny little skirts with these big trays what can I get you and at no point in my trip was I like oh that's a really good idea you know or oh I really wish I could because I have embraced and accepted that I am an alcoholic and that means that alcohol cannot cross my lips or everything else that is good in my life will stop. And, uh, you know, if, if someone who identifies as an addict gets the support that they need in order to be able to embrace abstinence, then it becomes a lot easier to continue to live healthfully. It's when people are constantly questioning whether that's a valid diagnosis that people get into trouble. Mm -hmm. Vegas, geez, I haven't been there in a few years. Went there two years in a row with the old company, me and Dean Somerset and a bunch of other people walking around in Vegas. And yeah, you had those big slushy drinks with like three or four ounces of booze in them. That that, that was me. D- Dean's a lightweight. He doesn't drink very much. Uh, I think he might have one drink at like the fitness summit and then that's kind of it. He retires for the evening. And then like every corner, someone's asking you to, to take a limo and yeah, drugs and for you, have, you and strippers and whatever you want. And you have all these people who are like flicking cards like of like strippers to go to the the um the strip pubs, <laughs> the spearmint and rhino and all this other sort of stuff that's down there. But uh yeah, it's it's a different experience. If you've never been to Vegas, everybody should at least see it once. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless and, you're uh, an addict. <laughs> if you're you're trying, again, then if you're, and you're newly trying to sober and then go. Yeah. If you're newly <laughs> trying to abstain <laughs> Don't go there. If you are a gambling addict, no, bad idea. Well, oh yeah. Let's. Well, a lot of what we we're going to talk about it has to do with with addictions and especially alcohol. And something that I noticed that goes really well to this conversation. Um, so I grew up in Newfoundland. For anyone who doesn't know, I don't really have the accent. Every once in a while, someone says, "Oh, I totally hear." Well, I think you're crazy. Uh, but it seems like culturally, alcohol consumption is fairly ubiquitous, and it got me to thinking about how in some cultures, and you hear. You hear about Germans drinking a lot, or I have a lot of East Indian clients, and they talk about how, like, in India, they drink more than Germans. I don't know how that's, or Ireland, that's my heritage. How, I think in some of those cultures, the the consumption of alcohol is so ubiquitous. And I wonder, does this actually very easily disguise alcoholism? And do you have a lot of people within there? Uh, and, and it might not just be a geographic or, or, or cultural along those lines. It could be a workplace culture. It could be, um, you know, a company in their culture or an industry does this disguise a lot of alcoholism and people are functioning as true alcoholics or is this stuff fairly innocuous? And, uh, let's see. And then I, okay, we'll go there first. What do you think about that? Uh, I I think what you're asking is, does the culture of, you know, widely accepted binge drinking make it more difficult to diagnose alcoholism absolutely (laughs) that was a great recap way better than i I I think that's what you just said (laughs) i'm not sure that's a big part of it yes yeah i mean you know we we judge ourselves in context of the people that we surround ourselves with 
So like when I was drinking, I made sure that my friends were all people who drank real hard because the people that I might have hung out with who didn't drink a lot made me feel too self-conscious about my own alcohol consumption. So in that way, my addiction dictated my social scene. And if you're someone who drinks a lot, it makes sense that you're going to have you're going to surround yourself with people who don't make you feel self-conscious about how much you're drinking. Um and, you know, whether it's because you're Irish or because you're blue collar or because you're from Newfoundland or because you're, you know, uh, a stay at home mom, there's a huge spike right now in alcoholism for stay at home moms because they're bored out of their. Ooh, I almost did it because they're bored out of their minds. And, uh, you know, they and they, they need some relief and they want some relief and social media has decided that it's really fun and funny to be like, oh, it's wine o'clock. Oh, I have two kids. That means that I'll be slamming a bottle of Zinfandel tonight or whatever. What's that? So Zinfandel? That's as a, that's that a has wine. become okay. more culturally accepted, alcoholism has risen for stay-at-home moms. So yes, absolutely. It, it makes it more difficult for people to accept that they have crossed that line into alcoholism because there is so much consumption that reminds everywhere me, that reminds me of an old simpsons episode if anyone's uh, the old simpsons episodes are always way better where homer gets a job in a different city i think it was in colorado and his boss in the nuclear plant turns out he's a bond villain but he's a really nice bond villain hank scorpio is the name so mart the house that they're living in everything is like self-cleaning so marge is really bored and she's complaining she's like I'm up to drinking a, half, a glass and a half of wine a day, I, I, right? So she's really stressed out about that. Of course, it's not very much, but uh, yeah, so that reminds me of that. How do you, um, I guess in your experience, how do you wake people up um, to even know that it's a problem? Because like a lot of people will cover the fact that it's happening when it's happening because of all these things. And same thing with food addiction is that people don't even know it's happening. How do you wake them up and realize like, hey, shit's, shit's going a little downhill here. Well, um, it's hard to do, but if you're in a, you know, if you're close to someone who's suffering from any kind of addiction, I think what's most important is to not protect them from the natural consequences of their decisions, to not protect them from the natural consequences of their actions. So if someone, uh, it, it's, it's letting them deal with the aftermath that, enables people to finally sort of accept that they've gone to a place that they don't want to be and to wake up and to do something about it. Codependency is the desire to micromanage other people's emotional experiences to make sure that everybody stays as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. And so if you feel like you're, you know, burning a lot of calories, making sure that the drinker, the heavy drinker in your life is still getting to work and still feeling okay, or mm -hmm. if you're burning a lot of calories, making sure that the addictive eater in your life doesn't feel self-conscious or doesn't feel, you know, whatever it is, then reining in your tendency to do that and letting them deal with the shit that is the direct result of the decisions that they're making is probably the most caring decision that you can make. I think this opens up a whole nother conversation too about, you know, I think a lot of the language we've used is very centric on the individual who's dealing with the addiction, but the addictions cause a lot of problems for the people in their immediate lives, particularly family members. Uh, mm -hmm. do, do you actually work with anyone or do you have any thoughts for anyone who is 
dealing with that they're not themselves the the person with the addiction but they're they're so directly affected by affected by it that it's fucking their lives up Mm -hmm. the best thing that anyone can do who has an addict in their lives is to set the best example that they can set so that the person in their lives who is struggling can see what it looks like to make healthier choices can see how much healthier and stable someone is who is prioritizing their own health. So, and that's really hard because the person who is in a relationship with the alcoholic wants to focus on and fix the alcoholic, but the best thing that they can do is focus on and fix themselves so that they can give the person that they love uh, something to aspire to. What about enabling this stuff? And I don't know if I can come up with a specific example, but you probably observed a fair bit of this, the people you dealt with, the people around them enabling behavior. Well, we have, we can use it. We can just use a fitness example. Like we have nutrition coaches and shit, um, letting people kind of go off the tracks and be like kind of supporting them in that. Does that make sense? Like letting them off the hook when they don't yeah. adhere to the program. Yeah. Cause that would be, that would be basically enabling them. Like not saying shit when you know the problem. Um, yeah. I well it it's harder when you're talking about a nutritionist and client relationship because they're not in each other's personal lives. Uh I when I think of enabling, I think of uh I think of like a married couple where, yeah. you know, maybe the wife drinks really hard and so she can't wake up until, you know, noon or whatever. And so the husband takes over all of the responsibilities in the house Mm -hmm. so that she doesn't feel badly about sleeping in every day. That's enabling. That's being like, you know, you're making really poor decisions and I'm going to clean up the mess that you're leaving in your wake so that you can continue to feel okay about making really poor decisions. Stopping enabling means not, uh, not, Doing the work. Not doing the work for someone else. Not taking over somebody else's responsibilities. What would you you say to someone who is afraid to stop enabling for fear of losing the relationship? Let's say, again, in a romantic relationship. Uh, That's a perfectly valid fear. Yeah. And you have to sort of, you know, ask yourself, are you willing to let things get worse so that they might get much, much better. Are you willing to take that gamble? Or would you rather continue to let this relationship play out exactly as it's playing out and get worse and worse and worse because that's the nature of addiction? I like it. This is why we brought I you like on. I like that we're keeping it light, you guys. <laughs> I know we're, we're like going super deep. No, but I, th- I, th- I think honestly, like even when we're talking generalities and like certain scenarios, but like it is like people will pick something out of it. Cause I'm sure there's someone listening that can see these things, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's overeating, whether it's drugs and gambling, whatever. But like, there is somewhat of a formula at this point, like maybe not everything's perfect, but there are things you can do and there are outcomes to the things you do or don't do. Like if you don't do anything and you keep enabling, it could it probably, well, not probably, but it's not necessarily going to get better and it's not necessarily going to get worse, but you, you got to take that own risk on yourself. Uh, if you protect, it's, it's, oh no, you first, Kelly. 
Well, I was going to say it's, it's, if you don't do anything, it is not going to get better and it is probably going to get worse. And they probably think the opposite. Like if I just keep enabling, they'll get better. And from your experience, that's probably not the truth. (laughs) That's not the truth. Yeah. Because the nature of, of addiction is progressive, you know, which is part of why, part of why it's very difficult for the medical community to define food addiction as an addiction, Mm -hmm. because it is not progressive in the same way that opiate addiction and alcohol addiction is progressive. It's not, it doesn't necessarily take more and more and more and more food, you know, endlessly more no. in order to affect the same response. No, it's, it's, so, a, it's a 10 year process. Like it's two pounds every Christmas and that equals insulin resistant. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it takes too long to develop and then you can't tell what the cause is. So they uh, fucking hate it. It depends on the person too. I mean, some people get very Fet- morbidly obese very quickly. yeah well, and the system's crazy like the body that's its it. own consequence but kelly's right it is a little bit different than uh, dealing with cocaine for example mm-hmm. well yeah okay. we've got more do, questions do, do, <laughs> do you want to ask the other one or is it we do we kind of I, cover I, it? I actually kind of like i want to flip the order of these so we'll go in here first um we had james fell on not too long ago and he's got a new book uh holy shit moment it's actually a really really good book um and so he describes how people who think of themselves as non-smokers versus ex-smokers are more successful in their efforts. So these are people who still used to smoke, but how they had less relapse when they actually now frame mentally that they were non-smokers versus ex-smokers. So, and of course, when we're used to alcoholics and alcoholism being very, very clear on the fact that they are alcoholics recovered alcoholics and that's a part of their identity to stay away from it so those two things sound the opposite of each other do you feel there's an advantage Uh, and do you think people think of themselves as non-drinkers versus recovering alex alcoholics could be advantageous or does it matter my experience has been that the more someone identifies as being in recovery from a thing, the more likely they are to continue to be able to abstain from that thing. Because, uh, because it's, because to say that one is a non drinker who has developed an addiction to alcohol feels disingenuous to me. Um, because you're at your core, someone who desperately wants to drink as much as possible all the time. You know, so to, to identify as a non-drinker just doesn't, it's just, it doesn't seem honest. Uh, but I can, I can see how for some people the, the, just the language of I am a non-smoker, I am a non-drinker, I am a non-compulsive overeater or whatever, whatever you want to, I can see how that could be helpful to some people. Um, but that has not been my personal or observed experience. I think it's, well, I, I know this in terms of, of the way that James wrote the book. It's all in the the way that people, their identity, what their identity is. So if your identity is that of a smoker and, and an ex-smoker is still part of the identity of being a smoker, it can be more mm-hmm. challenging, right? You're always still in that, that person. If your identity is that I am a non-smoker, then the idea of smoking a cigarette is is disgusting or foreign or not a part of your, your thinking or consciousness. I suspect alcohol is probably a little different, but it goes into fitness. And of course, we've got, you know, the next question coming up has to do with that, uh, fit, fitness and addiction. I think the most successful people who, and I've got a client who had a really massive transformation, I think it, it takes a major identity shift 
to think of yourself as a fit person versus the formerly non-fit person makes it a lot easier to not have to deal with like uh, decision fatigue and the traditional belief system that will willpower is a finite resource. It sort of breaks that system entirely. And then, then your, your default decision-making becomes a completely different pattern than your old decision-making where like I, for me, I've, I've described it this way, you know, to go to skip a workout in a day takes more emotional stress and strain on me than it is for mo- it's, it's sort of the same as someone else trying to decide to go to the gym. We know uh-huh. those people who they're, they try to pack their gym bag, they leave work and then they actually have to build up the emotional energy to actually go off to the gym. For me, it's actually that stressful to actually miss a workout. I have to conscientiously decide that I'm skipping a workout on that day. So I completely flip-flop that. And that's a part of my identity as someone who works out all the time. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you and see what you think about that. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. The What you started with, that you have a client who had a major transformation and now he's thinks of himself as a fit person as opposed to a not formally unfit person. Mm. Uh, I, I, you kind of, I kind of got stuck right there because I just stood here thinking, huh, do I think of myself as a fit person at this point? You know, I've been a personal trainer since 2007. I lost the bulk of my weight in 2005. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've gone through this huge transformation, but I don't, I still don't know, despite all of these things that I do, I I still don't really identify as a fit person. I still identify as someone who, uh, if left to my own devices, would sort of default back into all of those unhealthy patterns. So, um, and I, and it depends on the day, what would take more effort going to work out or not going to work out. It depends on how I have been treating myself and taking care of myself in every other way. If I have been making caring choices in the 24 hour period leading up to wanting to work out, then working out is a no brainer and it takes zero effort and energy on my part. If I've been slacking like on my sleep or on my nutrition or even just in how I spend my time with my kids, then going to work out can feel like a giant pain in the butt. So I, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to consider how one identifies as relates to fitness. I think it's probably different for different people. I think there's some people who probably have to remain hypervigilant, um, always against exactly what you described. They're always sort of lingering in the background. And and I know that would require willpower and and it can be very emotionally taxing at times. I I do genuinely believe because I am very much this where, you know, places I've been in the past versus where I am right now is, is I've had a major identity shift and therefore maintaining those behaviors doesn't require willpower. Does that make sense? You mean it automatically? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, you know, I think of people like uh, in, the, in the book, James uh, mentions our friend Chuck uh, Gross, who lost, mm-hmm. well, shit, like 200 pounds. Or I think Carter Good might be another really good example of a, a major transformation. And I, I still think everyone has to be a little bit on guard and slipping into old behaviors but I do think that you can experience a major identity shift and how you think about yourself can really take a lot of that like willpower fatigue um, decision-making fatigue out of the equation and I think it can become a lot easier 
I suspect for some people with addiction, that can actually work extraordinarily well. I think there are probably other people where uh, you just can't let your guard down, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Let's tie this into fitness professionals, since we're going like super not deep today. <laughs> <laughs> and none of us can pronounce any like smart words. So like, this is just like... <laughs> yeah, keep it, keep it simple. Fitness, so because we're all fitness professionals, we're often examples of in the industry of extreme physical and lifestyle changes. Is there a risk to being too addicted to fitness and nutrition extremes? Sure. Of course. I've seen people completely lose their lives to not being able to rein in their exercise compulsions. Um, you know, lose their relationships and, and lose their jobs because they attached so much of the, their self-worth and identity to, you know, running 20 miles a day or whatever it was. I've certainly seen addicts transfer that tendency from food or drugs or alcohol or gambling onto fitness. That said, you know, there's a, there's an order in which things are likely to kill us, right? <laughs> if we are sobering up from uh, meth and we decide to replace that with say i don't know speed walking go to town do you know what i'm saying yeah. like you're yes you may you may end up getting an overuse injury you may end up you know i don't know what but but not everything not all addictions are created equal and not every one of them is likely to land you in a premature grave so if if I'm working with someone who is, you know, really doing something extreme, changing their lives, getting sober from something, and they want to grab exercise and run with it, I do not discourage that, because life is going to come in and things are going to happen that are that are going to temper that desire to go too far with exercise, and that's a very natural part of the process. Like they start all guns blazing and then they realize that oh, actually they still need to go to work and they still need to sleep. And so things become more moderate by necessity. So yes, I think that, that it happens. I think that there are some potential dangers and I think that those potential dangers are nothing compared to the dangers of the things that they replaced. What are some signs to look for, for, I'm not going to say being dangerous, but like, we have fitness professionals listening, and even people who know people who do this. What are some of the signs of when shit goes a little too far in terms of fitness and nutrition? Like when it can be a danger. I, if there's an, you know, if there's chronic pain suddenly, obviously something is wrong with form or frequency or something. You know, the body, the body tells us what it needs. The body's job is to maintain homeostasis. So when you wake up in the morning, if everything hurts all the time and it's not just DOMS, it's not just muscle soreness, you know, if it's joints, if it's tendons, if it's whatever, then that's something that needs to be addressed and not allowed to continue. As far as nutrition goes, if someone is becoming so obsessed with what they eat that they're distracted from every other facet of their lives, that's also problematic and needs to be addressed. I like it. You basically, bringing, she was telling me I should stop while I did stop squatting. Bringing Tupperware containers of boiled chicken and broccoli to weddings. 
You know what? If you it depends. That one fucking depends. If you literally just got on your shit, that might not be the worst. It's like going to Vegas when you just stop doing cocaine. It's like probably like you can probably go like just don't do it. I, I, I don't know if anyone actually does this kind of crap. You hear stories about it, but like I've never been to a wedding where anyone whipped out their Tupperware out of like no? a, a six pack. Hell no. I mean, we you know stories about fitness competitors who are dieting for show, and I think it's just more of a a, a part of the industry that's got this old school draconian like oh you have to suffer sort of mentality and and the only option is just chicken and tilapia four weeks out this sort of bullshit if you're at a wedding and you bring only broccoli and chicken like i would argue that they're under cal like that's probably one of the, their six fucking meals that's like 800 calories they're fucking insane it, it is would not be very difficult to calculate the calories you need and then eat something, whatever the, the fucking dinner is at the wedding, and be po- and be a normal human being. Best tip though, if you're gonna have a wedding, like always have progies. No one hates progies. I don't like progies. What, Kelly? Do you, you like don't progies? like progies? Yes, that's Andrew? fucking that's fucking weird. Like well, if you have all you can eat progies, the wedding's a, a hit. Yeah, I I, would, I might have three or four. Um, I don't. I hate gravy. It's kind of a running joke with some of my friends that I absolutely can't you're stand not, gravy. Don't talk gravy. anymore. I don't like hot dogs. They're disgusting. Ketchup is awful. Although ketchup chips what? are fantastic. You hate you hate literally all the highly palatable stuff. Which like is you why probably are bringing chicken to the wedding. No, <laughs> but because he likes it, not because he's prepping like, for a show. Ketchup was designed so that no one cannot like it. It's disgusting. What? It is absolutely disgusting. Even the smell of it's just a like, yuck. Wow. <laughs> like that's that's so Kelly is that a sign <laughs> that Andrew is out of his mind yes is there is there that I don't even know him yes <laughs> you don't like hot dogs man no they're disgusting it's not like all they eat in Newfoundland is like ketchup and hot dogs well we've said this before poutine yuck and we're Canadian up here and I, the idea of like putting gravy on soggy fries mm-hmm. And like melted cheese curds is like that's that's See, looks like a vomit. I don't me. love gravy, but like it tastes good. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> oh, we learned something new about Andrew today, Kelly. Yeah, we did. He's one of those yeah. fitness professionals that takes things a little too extreme. No, I Can't love have a hot dog. I love scotch, apple pie. I clobber apple pie. Uh, my clients have been bringing me lasagna lately, which is fantastic. So <laughs> when they bring you food, it's just it's wonderful. What about macaroni? It depends. <clears throat> fuck uh let's 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 push towards the end um because i don't want to make fun i didn't even make fun of andrew's red hair today i was like he like he doesn't like ketchup because he's a redhead everyone made fun of him so he's like he hates everything that's red i like barbecue sauce it's not red it's brown i have like you like all the colors of the hair that you can't have i like apples (laughs) green apples only though uh, people often think that just getting thinner equates to happiness. What goes into that discussion to help people address the other underlying sources of the unhappiness? Just to keep it simple. This is, this is pushing us toward the end, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew wrote, Andrew basically wanted like the shotgun therapy session here. And so all of these are actually him. <laughs> He's... <laughs> yeah. We want your um, expertise, oh Kelly. So, so here's here's what I've learned in my many years of working with many, many, many people <laughs> is thin feels so good. It feels so good. And it's so fun and amazing. 
and novel and delightful for some period of time. Whether it's, you know, depending on how long you've been larger than you're comfortable with, depending on your life circumstances, being like healthy and thin could, you know, be a high that lasts three months or six months or even three years. But eventually that novelty wears off. And what you are left with is all of the demons that have been following you around in your head the whole while along and the realization that being thin did not fix everything in your life, which is what people often imagine it's going to do. Being thin just means that you're thin. It doesn't mean you suddenly have a good marriage. It doesn't suddenly mean you love your career. It doesn't mean you like your neighborhood. It doesn't mean your kids aren't assholes. Oh, does that count? Does assholes count? Assholes. Did I just break my streak? I didn't say the F word, so that's all. <laughs> you basically said I'm your saying. kids are assholes, which is basically saying the F word. <laughs> I disagree. I respectfully disagree. So, so, but what does lead to the happiness, the joy, the satisfaction that we think we're going to find by being thin is making caring choices consistently in all facets of life. Like, if you're doing that, you are going to wake up feeling awesome. If you're doing that, your body is going to arrive at the healthiest weight for you, whatever that happens to be. If you are making caring choices whenever you have a choice, you're going you're gonna to enjoy being you in your life. And it doesn't really matter what you weigh, although odds are, if you're making caring choices, you're going to be in a healthy weight range. Um it doesn't matter what size you're wearing. It, 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 it is all about how you choose to make decisions in the moment. Uh, something that you said early on uh, got me thinking about this. <clears throat> I uh, recently read this book, uh, Sapiens. Uh, it's a really popular in our industry. A lot of people keep talking about it. it it's actually a pretty good book. But very, towards the very, very end, the author talks about this uh, psychological makeup of humans and how we will go back to kind of a baseline of happiness, uh, no matter what happens to us. The example used in the book is, let's say you get a, a, a guy, a man and a woman, and the man wins the lottery and the woman gets into a car accident and essentially loses the use of one of her legs. And if you went mm -hmm. six to 12 months later and asked them about their, their amount of happiness, how happy they were, they, on average, you would find that they both were about the same and they had both returned to their baseline of happiness after the mm -hmm. initial exuberation of the good or the initial uh, sadness and, and depression of the bad. And I've mm -hmm. seen this pop up before. So I suspect that that's also part of this, although obviously there's a hell of a lot more when you, you haven't that, addressed like underlying demons. Was that the same example? Like the guy won the lottery and his wife lost her leg? Or that, those are two separate ones? Uh, it was... An example that he used in the book concurrently, oh, okay. um, and I think it might Sorry. have been a brother and sister, or maybe it was a no, it wasn't a husband and wife. It, it, it was two people I used as example concurrently. Yes, mm -hmm. I believe that's true. Uh, you know, the the novelty of a positive or a negative experience can really move the needle on our own perception of our own joy, but it it. If, you know, water finds its own level, like mm -hmm. happiness finds its level again. We do, we, and I don't know if it's because of our early childhood experiences or personality or some combination of the two or many factors, but yeah, everyone has kind of a, 
a baseline, sort of like your, your normal core temperature. Like mm. everyone's is a little bit different, but yours is probably quite consistent. Your perceived happiness is probably quite consistent. And, and, you know, you can, you can win a competition, you can lose 200 pounds. Eventually, once the novelty wears off, you'll probably feel the way you felt before that happened. I think that's very much part of our biological, psychological makeup. Um, I think part of that, uh, the way you sort of explains it is that it's a motivator for a lot of our biological drives to reproduce, to, to live longer, that sort of stuff. If, if humans got too complacent and too happy, then you'd lose the drive to do all this other sort of shit. And then a lot of it's just a genetic component of different people have baseline um, personalities. And, and some people, as part of the personality, there are a default less happy and other people mm -hmm. are just more positive, brain chemistry, what have you. So mm -hmm. that, that stuff definitely plays a role. But again, I still think that the most important part of all this is is addressing, like you said, you know, your personal demons. And if someone has any number of emotional issues wherever they arise from, losing the weight, it's going to have a benefit. I, I think it's a, a universally good thing uh, for your health to to if if you're categorically like morbidly obese or in that general range low -hanging to, fruit. to lose the weight but you're right it is low-hanging fruit it's easy um and, and we yeah we have extremists who will argue that you know people are are healthy at any size and i don't think that's a conversation we want to go too far into well, it's end man we're at the end we can't pull that <laughs> fucking yeah. shit can of worms <laughs> uh, I, I, I think most because kelly probably has something to say for that one i'll, I'll leave it here i Wrap think <laughs> uh, that's that that'll be next time i think most reasonable people kind of know the difference of that and then it just becomes again another piece of low-hanging fruit for some people to be really nasty towards people who are obese so let's not go there. I think that it's hard to be, it's, if you're someone that's empathetic, you're not going to tell people like, you need to fucking fix your marriage and like your fucking relationship or shit. You don't start there. Like, <laughs> unless you really know the person, you know, they're not going to react badly. Like the other stuff is a means to possibly them understanding the other shit because they got to wake up. Like essentially the, the, the food will get them to possibly wake up maybe. or maybe not. That's why well, we have people like Kelly to kind of have this community. You know what I mean? And have your thing going on. Because I'm sure you've helped a lot of people. You know? That was a good wrap-up. Yeah. I, that was a skillful I know. Uh, podcasting moment you just had. I, I liked that. I was trying to, like, pump your tires so, like, you still like us at the end. I like you. some hard questions. Um, do you... Okay. Before we go and talk about books, there's this one book that, like, Andrew hates. It's, it's how to... How to... Um, the subtle art of not what is it? Yeah, subtle Kelly. art of not giving a Kelly. The you know. subtle art of not giving an f bomb. Fuck! I almost had you. Um, <laughs> oh! Oh come on! That was so transparent. I know. I was I'm gonna. So I know. Good. I was gonna try to sneak it, and I didn't think I could do it. And I was like, I'm just gonna go for it because I don't think I can do it. I'm after. glad you went for it. It's important to try. I know. That's why I wasn't listening to your response. I was like trying to think of it. So we've mentioned. <laughs> what do we mention? We mentioned mentioned James Fell's holy shit moment. We mentioned subtle art, which is trash. Uh, we mentioned Sapiens. I, I, Brene Brown early on. You got anything that you've read lately that you'd, uh, you'd share with everyone to add to the discussion of uh, reading? Uh, yeah, Stephen King's It. Oh really? my god. <laughs> I haven't read that one. I haven't... So freaking good. I, you know, He's a one good of writer. the things that I shy away from is reading industry books. Mm -hmm. uh, because because everything gets all muddy in my head. 
So when I read, I read for pleasure, and when I read for pleasure, I like to read Stephen King. Yeah, he's so. my, he's my, I haven't read all of his books, but like, um, I like a lot of his stuff, like The Shining and like Mister Sleep are like my two favorite books. He's amazing. Yeah, he's they're... talk about prolific. Mm-hmm. Really I, I want to squeeze him so hard. If, uh, don't don't do that because he's rather like small and and frail now. After that, well, it was a long time ago, but he had this. Uh, he was hit by a van uh, on a rural main road and nearly died. And he spent some time in recovery from that one. Someone hit so, Stephen King with a van. Yeah. So how bad would you feel? I, I actually, for the, like, you're, you're, in general, is, you'd feel bad, but like if you hit Stephen King, like fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's detailed in one of his books actually. So I recently read a Stephen King book, but it's actually his book called On Writing, so it's a non-fiction piece, oh, okay. but actually does detail a lot of his uh, his early years and kind of how him and his wife, they basically had nothing and like just abject poverty, and then now later on in life, things have gone quite well for him, and, and the van accident was one of the things that he details, but it's actually a really good book if anyone is interested in learning more about writing. Going back to it, um, <laughs> we've talked about this a few times, I tend to get caught up in a lot of like non-fiction books. But for fitness professionals, especially, or just anyone, I think it's actually a really good idea to read a more diverse array of stuff, including fiction, some classic, classic literature. Just expands your horizons. You have more shit to talk about. For fitness professionals, if all you're reading is research, and I think four or five times we've had a guest on who they didn't read anything else other than research, so they mentioned research in this section. I'm like, holy fuck. But if you're working with people all the time, I, I really hope you have something to talk about with them about that is not the technicalities of fitness and nutrition. It's going to make yeah. you a hell of a lot more interesting. It's going to make the experience more fun for them. Absolutely. You got to learn how to tell stories. Like people love that shit. You know, and you, if you don't actually read stories, like, I don't know. Hard to tell them. It's hard to tell. It's hard to create a story. You don't know what a good story is. Like, you know, um, Okay. For anyone who has, who's listening, Kelly has another podcast, so we talk about a lot of stuff. She swears a lot, and we have a lot of her backstory on that one. But can you remind everyone that's new and coming back where to find you online, since you're not online, apparently? Ha! So you can go to my website, strongcoffee.com. Coffee is C-O-F-F-E-Y, because my name is Kelly Coffee. Strong Coffee, get it? I'm mm-hmm. so clever. Uh, and I'm Strong Coffee Personal Training on Facebook, Strong Coffee Gram on Instagram. And like I said, I don't post a whole hell of a lot, uh, but when I do, it's pure gold. <laughs> I, 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 agree, I would agree with that. Like you, you post, you you post meaningful stuff. Like it's not like a post every day, but when you do have stuff, it's it's you're, you want people to you have something to say. And she, you know? I do have something. And she to stays. Say. Out. I don't just talk to talk. No, she stays out of the arguments. It's not like. Uh, the current one is is Mike Isertel is trying to bait Lyle McDonald into a, a live debate because Lyle is pretty much just running his mouth at everybody who's important in the research side of stuff. So I, f- I figured I figured out social media FYI, you, you don't get into the fights, but you like put gifts or something where like the person who posted it will like it, and then you po- you pick up on their feed, and so now the more posts you're just part of and you just talk shit to people, the more you're in. Okay. I figured it out. So if you ever huh. want to not post things, just go and like something or just post like a emoji and you're good. That huh. sounds like a giant Genius. sinkhole of your own time to read all the comments. Well, you don't read the comments. You read the thing and just think of something clever to say. Like, oh, like Mike, like Lyle would totally win. 
Like that's I think that's what I put. <laughs> like Lyle would destroy you. <laughs> I, I, I think someone said that they wanted to see a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu match between Lyle and Mike, and I, I would I would pay to see that. I would, pay, I would pay to see that. Yeah, just because I would pay to see like Lyle like maybe win. Because like, it'd be so funny. It'd be so funny. If they, like, no one wants... Like, everyone knows Mike's going to win, but everyone wants to see him get choked out just because it'd be funny. Well, we could we could see if we could talk Lyle into it and like have it like give the proceeds. People pay and the proceeds go to some really great charity. And then get Mike... Watch Mike strike toy with toy with Lyle for probably this is how about it's gonna three go. rounds and then strangle. This is how it's gonna go. Like I, I can just picture it here. Like they start the thing and then Lyle like literally doesn't know what to do and pokes him in the eye and kicks him in the balls. And then everyone's just like, because he would like freak out and panic. And then everyone would see his true soul is that he would he's an eye poker and just like total. And then then his whole career would be done. And like, like can you picture that though? Like that's what I would picture him doing is like, like oh. I, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him or any direct social media interactions, nor do I care to. So uh, there's so many great people who are putting out great information who are also really, really pleasant human beings that I'd rather devote my energy into. Well, like anyway, Kelly. Yeah, like Kelly. So, like uh, and Kelly, you're back at the Fitness Summit in May, correct? You're on I the... sure am. Cool. Yeah, I've already booked my flight. I got to book my flight. I booked my registration and hotel room, so I will be there. Try to bring some friends down, and I'm looking forward to that again. So, listeners, okay. if you are in the industry and you're looking to go to the granddaddy of all great fitness conference events, it's it'll be my third year in a row, and it really changed my career. First year I went there, I met a lot of really cool people. And this podcast is not unrelated to having had that experience. We brought Guido last year and that's changed his career. Um, it could be one of the best things you ever did just to get out in a network with people. So, and you get to see Kelly speak and she is wow. You know, she stands basically on the same stage, not at the same time as Mark Fisher and holds her own. And Mark Fisher is, is just a dynamic and enthralling human being to listen to. True story. Cool. Basically just said like, you're not as good as Mark, but like you're pretty good. I did. I did pick up on that. Thank you, Guido. <laughs> but you're not a trained actor. Like you, should, like on a scale of like, should your presentation be shittier? Like it should be. He's like he's a fucking. I don't brought... think that's what I said. At that's all. what you said for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly's Plus, good enough to sh- almost no. Share what the same what I what I said was Kelly this. holds her own sharing a stage with someone. No. Anytime, you, anytime you say hold your own, that means like you're gonna lose, but like you can hold your <laughs> but own. But you're gonna fight. You're gonna go yeah. down fighting, girl. I like, and, and, <laughs> I, and I love Pete Dupuis. I actually think Pete is, is such an intelligent. What are you gonna guy. dog Pete but, too? No, but poor Pete was making light of the fact that he had. To, I think the first year he was down there that he had to follow Mark, right? And just Mark's dynamic flamboyance, and well, and Pete is just a much more straightforward well, guy with great info. We'll let we'll let Andrew at the end of every presentation give like a ranking. To all the presenters. Well, like, oh, you kind of held your own. They win. There, there's some rankings that wouldn't go well last year, but they seem to have cleaned that up and they have a great lineup this year. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, Kelly, thank you. This it, It's always fun to talk to you. So uh, I appreciate your time coming on here. And uh, I, I always say this stuff. Uh, we don't pull people on this podcast by accident. You know, if we got someone on here, there's someone we really like and we think they're doing great things for everybody. So I do encourage you guys to go and follow Kelly, you know, just like, you know, the guests we've had on before, uh, what she's doing is helping a lot of people in a dimension that a lot of our industry doesn't have any expertise in or knowledge. And yet it is something that addiction, a lot of people are dealing with it. People around you are dealing with it. 
and it's not necessarily easy to talk about. So some people are hiding it. So go look into that, especially if you're you're dealing with something you haven't really felt comfortable coming out into the public space about your own demons. Uh, it, this is a really, really good place to go. And if this is the first time you're finding this uh, us uh, through Kelly's feed, uh, she's got a previous episode with us early on. It's really wonderful. And we've got a lot of other really great guests that we uh, we believe in too. So maybe you'll stick around yeah. and enjoy more. She held her own. Thank you so much for holding your own with us. Uh, my pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you for having me on again. Shut up and sit down.